From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A large group of clinical and basic scientists at Upstate is engaged in several activities related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Frank Middleton is one of the researchers who's involved in many of those projects, and he is talking with me today. He's an associate professor with appointments in neuroscience and physiology, biochemistry and molecular biology, pediatrics, and psychiatry and behavioral science. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Middleton. Thank you, Amber. It's a pleasure to be back. What projects are underway that are meant to help improve testing related to negative or inconclusive results? That's an excellent question, Amber. So when the original test was released, there were a number of issues related to it that we saw an opportunity to improve. One of those was the simple fact that the test, as it was supposed to be deployed, did not require that RNA in the sample was protected from degradation. So when a swab was inserted up a subject's nose and then placed in a transport media and sent to a lab sometimes two or three days later, the RNA that was in there from either the virus but also the human host could degrade entirely. However, the approved CDC and New York State test used a measure for quality control to say that the test was valid that only required human DNA to survive the transport. And remind human, us, what's the difference between RNA and DNA? So RNA is a single-stranded transcript that converts the DNA signals in genes into proteins. And okay. it's much more transient. It readily degrades. If a cell wants to make a protein, it just releases more RNA, and then it gets rid of it. So RNAs are not meant to stay around, but DNA stays around. It's extremely stable. You can find prehistoric DNA from dinosaurs. So unfortunately, the primers that are used in the PCR test for New York State, for CDC, they use a human gene primer set that detects DNA just as readily as it detects RNA. So there might have been a sample that only had DNA survived, all potential viral RNA and human RNA degraded, and the laboratory would have concluded that that person didn't have a virus. But in reality, they shouldn't have determined anything because there might not have been any human RNA to survive the trip to begin with. So we redesigned the test to overcome that. We also made it more sensitive, so it would be less likely to miss when things are actually uh, present. When the virus is, is detectable, we increased the sensitivity a few orders of magnitude. And we made the test deployable in field situations, in home environments, by using a collection kit where the RNA is obtained from saliva that is stabilized. And it can be reliably obtained from saliva and spend months in a tube and still suffer no RNA degradation. So this is a big advance forward. It's opened up opportunities for the testing methodology to be utilized in a number of very important situations. One of those, for example, that researchers 
at Upstate are currently working on in collaboration with a number of surrounding counties is the ability to screen migrant farm workers who carry a high risk of transmitting the disease. They've never been screened potentially before. They live in close confines. We just had an outbreak of something similar in a county adjacent to ours where people were in a greenhouse tested positive at a very high rate. And so this test is something that could be used as a screening methodology very reliably and stably in essentially all of Northern and Central New York because it preserves the quality of the, of the human and the viral RNA if it's there. And it uses only saliva samples, which people are much more willing to donate for a screening test than a nasal swab. Another very interesting opportunity to apply this improved sensitivity and methodology actually has emerged in the form of screening wastewater samples. And so we've actually been working with Onondaga County and the Water Authority to sample and develop methodologies for detecting when the virus is present in a community's wastewater. And believe it or not, even though we think of wastewater as a consumer after product, in terms of the timing of when hospitalizations occur, the virus has been shown in other studies in other parts of the world to predate the peaks of infection. And so you can know when there are viruses and other pathogens in a community, in a neighborhood, not by necessarily going into the homes at all, but just by sampling the wastewater. And this gives us an opportunity to really get a leg up on the virus and where it's spreading. That's very interesting. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Frank Middleton, a scientist at Upstate who is involved in a variety of research projects related to the coronavirus. So it sounds like that test would be designed to be more trustworthy um, and more accurate. And also, if I hear you correctly, it would eliminate um, having to go so far back uh, in a person's nose to get a sample. It would be a saliva test, right? That's correct. So the saliva collection is extremely um, non-invasive. Somebody can actually dribble saliva out of their mouth, but uh, using a swab to collect it from the very uh, end of their mouth, a very short swab, uh, has proven to be extremely uh, pleasant, or not unpleasant, I should say, to the people who are um, providing those samples. And it's something that we've, we've used in our studies uh, for at least the last six years, studies of children with autism or people with Parkinson's disease or concussion, all of our work has used this exact same saliva swab approach. And we know that one of the things that it does, in addition to being well tolerated, is the solution in the collection tubes preserves the quality of the RNA. Now, and this is just to show active infection. This has nothing to do with antibodies, right? That's correct. So antibodies aren't really reliably detected until closer to three weeks 
after somebody has an infection. And it varies depending on someone's immune response and prior history to coronaviruses, history of exposure. But this is detecting the actual virus. We can quantify the sensitivity of these assays in terms of the number of copies of the virus you would have to have present in your saliva. And we know the sensitivity of that. So it can be very, very accurate as long as the RNA virus is intact. Now, does the viral level change uh, during the course of a person's illness? That's an excellent question. And I'm pleased to say that one of the approved um, assays that you can use for coronavirus detection is actually considered a true quantitative measure. It is the gold standard in lab assays, and that is referred to as digital droplet PCR. And that actually allows you to quantify the amount of virus in terms of copies present in someone's mouth. So we have been using uh, this just approved digital droplet assay in the lab with some of the samples that we have collected. And uh, we believe we should be able to get this uh, up and running. And it turns out our clinical pathology department at Upstate also has the same equipment. So they would be able to run this same assay. We're just working out some of the kinks and then we'll give them a, a full thumbs up. But this isn't something they would do on their own unless a clinician requested it. But clinicians are very interested in knowing the quantitative levels of the virus because that's how you would monitor if somebody is truly viremic. So if you have had a rampant systemic release of the virus throughout the body and if they're responding to treatments. So this is a big benefit for the ability to be able to quantify using essentially the gold standard technique, the digital droplet PCR. So I had not heard the word viremic before. Does that refer to having a lot of virus? It really is used to refer to the, the state at which you have virus um, flowing throughout the systemic circulation. So okay. normally this is a respiratory virus and somebody may not have detectable levels in the blood, but once somebody accumulates enough virus, it will pass beyond the respiratory confines and you would have log orders of magnitude, um, higher levels of virus in people and they would be called viremic if they progress to that state. Those are people who may never recover from a coronavirus infection, unfortunately. Well, what work is being done that explores factors that influence resistance to disease or recovery? Are, are there theories for which people might have a natural resistance or immunity? That's an excellent question. And there's a lot of research being done in many different locations to examine this. I'm actually a co-investigator on one study that is launched here in central New York um, to look at potential 
influences of the host genetics as well as the host um, microenvironment in the upper respiratory tract and, and mouth and subjects. Also to look at comorbidities, medical history, age, sex, smoking history, and try to determine in a prospective fashion what factors have the most influence on whether people are susceptible and whether they respond to the treatments or recover on their own and maintain immunity to the coronavirus. So these are the million dollar questions, multi-million dollar questions a lot of people want to know so that we can prevent this from happening again. And all of us are united in that. And I don't want to say that we have the answers. I don't actually think anyone has the full answers, but we do know that an individual's age, an individual's overall immune status and function, and their comorbid medical history probably stand out right now as three of the more compelling factors that influence the susceptibility and potential recovery. Okay. Uh, what's your best guess about a timeline for a vaccine? That is such an amazing, difficult question to answer. Okay. Uh, the vaccine that would be effective against uh, coronavirus um, that has shown the most promise in preclinical trials is one that uses attenuated viruses. So it's an old approach. It was one uh, that was used by Salk and others developing polio vaccines and is still used um, for influenza vaccines where you would use an attenuated form of the virus. And what does, and, remind, what does attenuated mean? So you have knocked down the pathogenicity of the virus and potentially made it completely non-infective or virtually non-effective, but it still has all of its proteins. Okay. And those, those proteins will elicit an immune response. And so if it's possible to use completely inactivated virus, that's obviously going to be the best in terms of safety. And hopefully you can really mount a sufficient immune response that anytime the proteins or even some similar proteins from similar coronaviruses are encountered by that person's immune system, they would be able to strongly attack and eliminate those particles. But that depends on a few things. Um, one of those is that those proteins themselves don't undergo rapid mutations and change their appearance or their sequence too much so that antibodies you develop in response to an exposure to the vaccine this year aren't ineffective next year if the coronavirus has changed the same way that influenza and other viruses will change across mm -hmm. time. So that seems to have the most promise. There are definitely other ways to do to develop immune responses. Um, this is different than the current cutting edge therapies that have been developed and have been used at Upstate, which involve really what's called um, transfer technologies, where you would take antibodies somebody else has generated in response to the coronavirus and give that to a sick person 
but it's related to the same idea. Normally, a human immune system will not tolerate these viruses, and they will develop antibodies. Hopefully, we can follow the lead of the immune system and have a, a broadly applicable, widely deployable vaccine that protects people for more than one year at a time. But it will take a lot more effort. The, the approach that I mentioned has been shown to work in non-human primates, some studies that were um, made available just last week and the week before, it's shown incredible promise in non-human primates, which have very similar respiratory system to humans and immune response. So it's really just now entering the, the clinical trials with human subjects who volunteered. And that's really what it's going to take. Initially, it's going to take volunteers who are willing to have a vaccine and then undergo an exposure. And I think those will be the next real remarkable round of heroes that we see emerge from this. Thank you to Dr. Frank Middleton, one of the scientists at Upstate who is involved in research related to coronavirus. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.